Well, I've been in uh, Georgia now for 15 years. What brought you down there originally? Um, well, I have some friends that have recording studios down here and, you know, thanks to that retrospect. So that's why I came to Georgia. But I originally, I left New York over 25 years ago. We need to account for another 10 years in there. Where, where were you in between then? <laughs> okay, I, uh, I, I lived in uh, Virginia. I lived in the uh, Pocono Mountains in, uh, 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 oh God, in, in Pennsylvania. And um, let's see, where else did I go? Uh, I think I went back to another place in Virginia and then I wound up in Georgia. As a New York native, what made you leave the city initially? Well, okay, at that time, my son was 10 years old. And even though he was going to parochial school, it, it was getting a little rough out there. We still lived in the Bronx. You grew up there and and knew it well, but did it did it feel like a kind of a big a significant change from the Bronx that you grew up in? Oh, 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 yeah! In our childhood, it was in our childhood, it was terrible, terrible. And you know, then of course they came in after uh, who was it? I think it was uh, Reagan who came to, to the Bronx, and then after that they fixed it up a bit, and. Uh, you know, it, it it was better to a point, but uh, to me, the projects were still the projects. Certainly, if you had the opportunity and the means to to move out and to move to, it sounds like a little, in most cases, a bit more rural area to give to give him a little more uh, room to grow up in. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I definitely headed out to the rural suburb type of area for my son. Yes, I did. Where was your music career at that point 25 years ago? Were you in the band still active? Oh, of course. You know, the thing of it is, that's one of the biggest misconceptions that we stopped. We hmm. never stopped. We may have regrouped. I've been through... Uh, Three revamps of ESG. In terms of keeping the band together and, and continuing to play, I mean, I know obviously the pandemic has been a big part of this for a lot of people, but even before that, it's perhaps gotten a little easier to keep a band together remotely because, you know, there's, you can do a lot of remote collaboration, people email songs back and forth. But was it difficult to leave the city and, and keep the band going? No, because it's like this to me. If music is in your blood, you got to do it. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like, a, 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 and especially if you write, it's like, it's something that drives you mad in your mind. You hear that song, you hear that sound and you have to get it down. Now, one of the funny things that I was talking to my son about, because he's an engineer and he writes music, is the fact that he said to me, I, he said, I don't know how you did it, mom, because when we were growing up, we didn't have where you can do all this stuff on a computer, lay a line, and come back to it. You've been pretty consistently writing all that time, it sounds like? Yes. And, you know, it's not performing here and there. I mean, you know, this, this uh, and Brian is, is, is really not personal, but I'm going to tell you something that happened to me, okay? I did an interview with a journalist, and that journalist turned around, just like we have an interview and I'm sharing with you my life, and wrote an unauthorized book, okay, full of uh, misinformation, you know, and, and frankly, bullshit. 
promise you I'm not I'm not writing a book, but but also and, and I know you're not super familiar with the podcast format, but one of the one of the really nice things about it is it doesn't have a lot of the limitations in terms of like print journalism and even in terms of radio where where things end up getting diced up and and quotes are pulled. I mean, this is going to, you know, for the most part, this is going to run pretty much exactly as the conversation that we're having right now. Your parents, I think your maybe your mom in particular, really got you into music as a way to keep you off the street. Well, not really. She didn't get us into music. She saw that we would be sitting there and we'd be watching shows like rock concerts. So these were shows that came on in New York. And we would always say, we can do that, Mom. We can do it. And this is me and my sister Valerie. Okay. And we would say, we can do that, Mom. And all we need, because we would look at what the, the musicians were playing on TV. And we figured, as long as you had a guitar and the drums, you were good. <laughs> she bought you your first instruments? Yes, she did. Uh, and that's actually going to be in a documentary because I actually have some of it where, uh, yeah, where uh, I, I'm playing on my first bass and Valerie is tapping the drums because she don't know what the heck she's doing. She was beating the heck out of the oatmeal boxes, but this is a real drum set. <laughs> yeah, I'm always curious, especially at a young age, how everyone, especially in a situation that like that where it's it's a bunch of siblings playing different instruments, how... How did everybody settle on their respective instruments? Well, well, first, it's like I was playing both bass and guitar and tambourine, you know, whatever was there to, to fill it. And then I realized, you know, when Valerie and I were writing these songs that, okay, I could physically write the song, but I couldn't physically play all the instruments at the same time. So, you know, we had uh, we had my sister Marie, and then we had my other sister, and she was just hanging around. So... You know, that's how that came about. At what point does it turn from, you know, a, a bunch of a bunch of kids playing on their instruments to actually being, I guess, a proper band? Oh, it took a while. <laughs> oh, yeah, it took a while. And one of the things and maybe you have heard me say many times is we used to attempt covers of songs. And. You know, we knew we were playing a Rolling Stones Satisfaction. We knew we were playing Rufus, Rufus and Chaka Khan's, you know, dance with me. And my mom would sit there and she was like, what is this? <laughs> because it was like every, every Friday after work, we would do it almost like a talent show for her. And she go, no, 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 no. That needs work. And we, we, I mean, we'd be upset, like, oh, man, disappointed. But, you know, that's how it came about. And one day I said to my sister, Valerie, I said, you know, if we play our own songs, I said, nobody's ever going to know we're making a mistake. At what point in the process do you really start writing the songs? Was it really that cover thing? Or, you know, were you, in the way that you described at the beginning of the interview, were you just, just inspired to start writing one day? Well, it was a bit of both, okay? But, but... I mean, we had first wrote some things on our own when we were playing on the oatmeal boxes and the folk guitar. But you know, now when you got the real instruments to get that to get that together, I mean, the funny part was at first with my sister Valerie's drum set, she didn't even have a hi hat. She just had, you know, we had to get hi hat. So slowly but surely, we put that drum set together. So it takes a while for you to to start playing instruments. 
were you playing out? Were you playing shows in those in those days when it was covers, or was that all just kind of still at home? No, that that that, that was in the house. When when we started to play out at talent shows, we were playing our own music. Was that high school? Where 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 were you? Yeah, I I was at I was at uh, high school, and um, my other uh, sisters Valerie and and, and and the other one, they were in. Um, middle school and and uh marie marie was just hanging out she wasn't doing nothing in particular (laughs) my older sister i have one sister and and we she's three years older and we definitely had our graps growing up um and it's kind of a funny thing about family bands or, or sibling bands that it tends to go, you know, one of two ways I mean, either, either everyone's really tight and everybody gets along really well, or those, or those sibling rivalries come out. Were you, were you competitive in the early days? Um, well, and again, like I said, myself and Valerie, we both do music, but other than that, I mean, me and my other sisters, we fought like cats and dogs. Okay. We fought. Okay. And I mean, physically, I remember one day we were playing at a club called Hurrah. And and my mother was there with us. And she said, you don't need to calm it down because we were going at each other. And then it was time for, ladies and gentlemen, ESP. And my mother said, clip it. And we went on stage and we smiled and we did our show. And then as soon as we got back into the dressing room, we were right back at it. Was that a pretty common occurrence? Or once the band actually started doing well for itself, did were you kind of forced to get along? Well, I, I tell you like this. In the early days, I never considered us doing well for ourselves. We 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 got gigs, but as far as the money went, it, it wasn't you know it wasn't all like great. And you know we continued to play along. Uh, uh, we we uh, did a record, and this is at this time. This is like the second band of ESC where we had two guys in it, and we did a record on uh, Powwow Records. And uh, playing with the guys, it, you know, it was fun. But we 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 were headed in, like toward rock sounds more. But we did a a, a record on Power Wow. It was just called ESG, and uh, it was interesting. I mean, I, I, I like cuts on there. There were a couple of cuts that uh, were favorite at the Paradise Garage, which was an underground club. And we like that. Why did you end up bringing out those? I guess I guess outsiders is the right word when it's a family band. So how did they end up coming on board? Okay, well, first uh, we had to get rid of my youngest sister because she had a serious drug addiction and she started to mess up on stage. Okay, and, and then when that happened, she had to go. And you know, thus you know, we we bounced up finding this guy, but the guy had a friend, and he was like. You know, we I can play guitar for you too. I said we we just needed a bass player because <laughs> you know other than that, yes, he's based on bass, drum, and some light guitar. We didn't need a rock star. That has to be an incredibly difficult conversation to fire your sister from the band. No, it was not. It wasn't difficult. The only one. The, the only one. No, it wasn't difficult. The only one because see, I believe. We're out there, you know, at this time, not only were we playing for ourselves, but there wasn't a lot of women acts out there, okay? So we don't want to be, you know, like, listen, you, you see a lot of the acts in, with guys would be drugs and things, and we didn't want that for ESC, and plus we were a family act, and we didn't want that crap. That's not how we wanted to be portrayed. Both the combination of, you know, as you said, there weren't a lot of female acts, but also being 
being a family band, did you find that in the early, early days that it was difficult to get people to take you seriously? No, I, I have never, I have never, okay, had a, a problem, you know, since the talent shows. And in one of the talent shows, we had met Ed Bowman, who ran 99 Records. He thought our sound was out of the world, and he became our unofficial manager. The drummer, Valerie, is, we're still best buds to the day. She was my co-writer and co-founder of ESG. We fired the bass player. Obviously, a very important part of, of ESG sound. Oh, yeah. It takes most bands, if not all bands, a while to get up to that point, and there's a lot of paying dues and, and scrapping involved in those early days. Not everybody takes it super seriously, but it sounds like you were all really set on making this thing work basically since day one. Well, well, this is where my mom comes in. I think, you know, she was living vicariously to us because she always wanted to be a performer. And she pushed and she pushed. And, and, you know, to this day, I thank her. Okay. She's no longer with us. But if she had not shoved and pushed, because I'll tell this story. We, the day we went to the talent contest uh, where we met Ed Bowman, I was standing online because it was a talent contest that if you won, you got a record contract and you got new instruments and all this stuff. So, oh my God, we wanted to win this talent contest. But then when I got online, we saw all these people and they had all those instruments of the day, you know, the one where it's a, it's a guitar with a keyboard on it and things like that. And we're like, oh my God, oh my God, how can we ever, you know, come up against them? So, I went back across the street to my mom who brought us down the car. And I said, Mom, Mom, I, I can't go in there. I said, they, I said, look at that. We, we don't have a chance. She said, what did you say to me? I said, we don't have a chance. She said, look, she said, I know you're good. You know you're good. She said, I took some my time and brought you down here from the Bronx to, to Manhattan. She said, what you're going to do is go back across the street Take the band in there and do what you're supposed to do. She said, if you don't, you know, you know those drains where the, where the water goes down? Yeah, she threatened to throw me down the drain. In the gutter. No, no, drain, gutter, anything you want to call it. She threatened to throw me down there. You see, I believed in my mom because my mom didn't play. So I washed my ass right across the street. And in we went, and like I said, we didn't win the contest, but we met Ed. And, you know, Ed told us the contract, the contest, the contest was rigged. And that, that he said, you're the best thing and the freshest thing. He said, but they wanted everybody to sound like everybody else. He said, but the first thing I noticed is you guys had a different sound. So again, he became my unofficial manager. So, you know, in, in a sense, you really did win the contest, it sounds like. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a beautiful story about your mom because the I think this is probably an even more common story from people is that their parents just don't get it that they end up being not being especially supportive and and I think oftentimes it does come from a good place of like understanding that that music is not a particularly easy path to go down but it sounds like yes she did I I mean there was a time where 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 when uh I'm going to say okay the mid 80s where in clubs, they started doing paybacks where, where people would, would perform with the tape and they, they, had, they seemed like they had no use for bands, especially in New York. Okay, so at this time, I told my mom, I said, you know, Ma, I think we should just hang it up. She said, what did you say? 
What really hung you up in those early days is feeling like like there was something else going on and that you weren't uh, weren't a part of it. But your mom really pushed you. It sounds like Ed did as well. Pushed you in, in, in the direction that I that I see in the interviews that you give all the time, which is that it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you don't sound like other bands. It doesn't matter that maybe you aren't a part of whatever like the cool thing is or the scene is. What what really matters is the music you make. Yes, yes, I will absolutely agree with you. I, I think ESG sound is is different. It's it's us, but it's funky and it's danceable. I, I, I you know, and, and it's funny because in that show, the one you saw at Elsewhere, it was so interesting to me to see how young our audience is. And, and you know, like they knew the lyrics to the songs and they, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, that's always heartwarming. But the good thing is to see them dancing and having a good time and you know, that's that's the thing that, that really, you know, puts a smile on my face. At the end of the day, sometimes, you know, if if I have a particular opener I want to open for me, I will ask. But, you know, the promoter said, what do you think about this? And I said, hey, whatever. It's danceable. Let's do it. Were there any bands in, in New York at the time when you were starting out that you did feel a sense of kinship with? Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, we always liked the Bush Tetris. The Bush Tetris were on the same label that we were on. And the reason we liked the Bush Tetris so much is because when we were first starting out and we didn't have big amps, we had small amps until we were able to afford bigger amps. They were loan us their amps to play, you know, the shows. And that's things, you know, that I will never forget. So the Bush Tetris will always stay a number one, you know, in our heart. One of the things I didn't realize until, you know, I was reading up on you even more ahead of the show that is that opening night show at the Hacienda in Manchester. To me, that's another very clear case of maybe not making a lot of sense on the face of it, but really, you really ended up fitting into that scene quite well. Well, I, I mean, it was, it, it, see, people make the big mistake and they think that, Ed Borman and Nine Nine Records was the one to, to, in so many words, discover ESG. She was our manager. And at that time, he had uh, pressed the record for the Bush Catchers. So I would always ask him, I said, well, Ed, if you, you know, when are you going to do a record for us? And he would go, yeah, yeah, you know, soon, soon, don't worry about it. And that's like a year went by. Then we opened at the Club Hurrah for an act called A Certain Ratio. And when we opened for them during sound check, you know, after I got off the stage, I met Tony Wilson. I had no idea who this guy was. And he said, hey, I was listening to you. I said, okay. He said, I really like your sound. I said, okay. He said, how would you like to make a record? And I said, sure. This was Wednesday. Saturday, we were in the studio with Martin Hannett and Tony Wilson. Still had no idea who the hell they were. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 you know. We did the recordings, and um, the rest is history. But it was Factory who first put out ESG. Nine Nine followed. Must have been surreal playing the show in in Manchester on the other side of the world. Well, 
Well, yeah. I, I mean, but, but the funny thing is, before we actually went to Manchester, the first place we had went to was Paris. And we had, there was a magazine called Actuel, and they had brothers over there. Now, that was interesting, of course. I mean, you come from the Bronx and you see Paris and you see the Eiffel Tower and things like that. So it was like, wow, things you saw on TV. So that was surreal. But then when we go to Manchester to play the Hacienda, when people go surreal, my story with the Hacienda is when we went over there, it was full of sawdust. They were not finished installing the sound system and all that stuff. And, you know, we're doing the sound check and all this <laughs> the drilling and sawdust is coming up and I, I get coughing and gagging. And I'm kind of like, hey, I got asthma. Yeah, the end things worked out pretty well. Did did the audience get it? <laughs> Look, at the end, we did we did the set, you know. But this is like during sound check. They wasn't doing the sawing and stuff when the audience were in. But this is sound check. But I'm like, Oh, wow. And, you know, it seems like that night, it was a Murphy Law night. Anything that could go wrong went wrong. Uh, uh, strings popped off guitars. <laughs> you know, it, it was crazy. But you know what? We got to do it. And uh, it, it, it's just, you know, a uh, historic thing. So, uh, you know, that people always say, wow. And I have the little thing. And, you know, I always put it up when we, we played the, the first night at the Hacienda. And we actually played the two closing nights of the Paradise Garage. Did you feel that that was the beginnings of the band really starting to take off? No, to me, the band didn't take off until 2000. So that's a good 30 years there. Yeah, well, 2000. I mean, we had did all that music and would have had. But in 2000, we had a label, another label from the UK called Soul Jazz. Uh, and they contacted us because they wanted to do a, a compilation, a retrospective ESD. And we were like, okay, why not? <laughs> you know? And from there, and at this time, at this time, our daughters are in the band now. So it's really all female. From your perspective, what, what, is, what does it mean to take off? Uh, it, you take off when you're, you're playing, like you're on tour touring all the time and you're making great money. Chuck King. <laughs> Then you've arrived. You're being respected. You're being respected for your art. So you you feel like that 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 respect wasn't really there in the same way until 2000. Correct. You were still able to tour, and you were still still putting out records. I mean, you know, I I, I assume that you had developed a, at least a you know loyal fan base by that point. Oh yeah, I'm not saying we didn't have a loyal fan base. But see, the thing you got to remember, when we started, okay, and ESD really started out performing in 1978, okay, we did not have the internet. We did not have all the things that we have today, okay? Anything you had to do was by mail, by fax. And and, and now, you know, it's just a, a, a push of a button in the email, and you can set up something. Or you can have your fans write you and tell you, how, you know, how much they like you or, or, you know, things that in retrospect. So that's a good thing. You know, uh, when I look at how things have changed, that's a great thing. Jumping ahead to that later time frame, it sounds like hip hop and, and the sampling. Obviously, a lot of your music was very widely sampled, but that that it was sort of a mixed blessing. That helped contribute to your notoriety, but that you weren't necessarily able to capitalize on it. That is correct. 
because when they first started sampling the music, there was no such thing as the sample law. The sample laws didn't come out, mm, I think, oh my God, until the mid-90s. So there was no way, you couldn't do anything. And I mean, we weren't the only one sample, but we were sampled widely. Do you feel, though, that, that that was a contributing factor in that kind of, that newfound success that you had in the era? Well, see, I'm, see, I'm going to say no. And the reason I'm going to say no, I'm not saying it did not help, okay? But see, ESG music, because, you know, if, you, if you're going on that thing, you're just saying that UFO carried us. And that's, and that's not true. We have records like Moody, My Love for You. And I mean, I'm sure you see them on commercials and ads today. Uh, I, it's All Right, which was used in, um, oh, God, A League of Their Own, the series on, uh, uh, oh, God, what is it? Um, I'm not, no, I don't know who was Amazon Prime, I think it's on. Uh, um, yeah, so, I mean, different cuts of ESG, so it's interesting, the discovery of ESG, but always we had a fan base, and we definitely had a, a, a feminine feminine fan base where, these, you know, the, the women with supporters, and there's a thing called Lady Fest, and we would play it every year that they had it in the States. We even played it out of the States, but Lady Fest was all about supporting women in the music industry. So, you know, it, it, it's, a, you know, whatever have you, up and, up and down type of thing, because I look at the music that that we put out, it, we even still put out some now, and that's like the last album I'm working on now, I'm wrapping it up, because, it, you know, it is a wrap. I'm having some health issues, and because of the health issues, I won't be able to perform. This year will be the last year, and it's not even, it's not even a lot of shows. You know, hopefully I will get back to New York one more time in 2023. But but that's it. I mean, if you were there, you noticed I didn't stand up until the last number. And and what what it is, I have something called Giambere, GBS, Giambere syndrome. Okay, don't know where the hell I got it, but I mean, for two years I was paralyzed from my neck down. I didn't think I was going to be able to get up and, and, and do this again. But, uh, you know, I thought because every time they told me no, I said, oh, no, I'm going to get up. So I'm still in the process of a lot of physical therapy. And, you know, to be able to move my hands, play my clave, play my cowbell and still sing, you know, I'm happy that I'm still here, Brian. I'm happy that you're here as well. And it was you know, it was amazing to, to see you, I guess, a, a month or two ago, the how long ago was that when you were paralyzed? Well, that happened just slightly before the pandemic kicked in. And I was like, oh, my God. So that's what, you know, in a way, when the pandemic was happening, it didn't affect me. That's all right, because I was laid out. This isn't at all comparable. But when the pandemic started, I got Bell's palsy. I had half of my face paralyzed. And it's, it's, it's an, what I can say is that it's, it's incredibly frustrating and yeah it's very this you know there's a lot of humility and and just like suddenly the these muscles like you, you suddenly have no control over them anymore yes yes I, I i know where you're coming from i mean for me to have to learn how to feed myself again learn you know how to wash myself again just the simple things in life you know oh yeah i got a great sense of you know 
a lesson in humanity. Oh yes, okay. That 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 you know you you never know. Okay, and and things I never even maybe paid attention to before, and you know to be thankful for the little things in life, you know that you're you're able to to walk, to get out of bed, to you know, oh my God, that this was really, really, uh, you know, uh, 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 a harsh lesson for me. We don't really understand all the things we take for granted until they're taken away from us. Yep, yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, I will attest to that, Brian, and and again, I. It's like, it's not something that, I, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, whatever, have you advertised because, uh, hey, I don't want anybody to, to feel sorry for me because I'm the type of person, don't feel sorry for me because I am going to get up and I am going to, 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 to make it happen, you know? I, yes, I need to slow down, but in the same retrospect, you know, just the fact that I am up and walking. Okay, slowly, you know, and on a cane, but I am walking, you know, uh, as physical therapy goes by, you know, we let go of the cane and stop walking on our own. But, you know, to lay on, be on your back for nearly a year and a half. And then, you know, the other process of still getting myself together, uh, it, it, it was really something, Brian. But, you know, I, I'm happy I'm here. I'm happy I'm able to get out there and entertain. But I do know, as this is becoming more of a, a struggle for me, that 2023 will be it because, I, you know, I, I just want to to relax. You had mentioned, I think, that you had had a pulmonary embolism as well. Are those, are those unrelated conditions? Yes. The pulmonary embolism, it's, it's uh, when you get clots in your lungs. And that can go to your heart and kill you in a second. You know, when these things move around your body. And that, that stopped. Okay, with that situation, that was prior to the getting the guillain uh, I was on oxygen for a year. So I had to roll around with an oxygen tank. And you know, when these things are foreign to you, it's like, no, 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 I, I can't do this. And, and, and yeah, I was saying to my, my doctor, uh, my pulmonary doctor, you know, uh, my hematologist, people in that retrospect, what can I do to get off this tank? I said, I'm an entertainer. I can't be on this tank. Do you know I actually did one show with the oxygen tank rolling? I didn't know that. No. Yep, in Chicago. It went well. Nobody knew. Because, you know, you got the oxygen tube up your nose, right? So we decided everybody was going to wear like, like, you know, those masquerade masks <laughs> and, and, nobody, and nobody knew the better. I had the tube go behind my, my uh, back and, and my daughter said she's only ever seen a few pictures of that online. You know, maybe I'll get that for the, for the documentary. <laughs> you absolutely have to get that for a documentary because that's, that's, that's an amazing <laughs> bit of trivia. Yeah, it <laughs> you strike me as somebody who is fiercely independent and you know I, I i would like to consider myself independent as well and i know that in those times where i've had health issues it's hard for me to ask for for help yes i'm gonna agree with you 100 percent. It, it's like just every little thing it almost it almost kills you because you're so used to being independent you, you're so used to Wanting to to do it yourself, even to this day, if I need anything, you know, it, it's hard for me it, it, even to ask my kids. Like, 
I need you to, you know, can you, can you pass me that pen? I can't get that, you know, because I went over to the table and now I got to walk slow if I want to get over to the table. So I'm like, man, let them pass me the pen. So it, yes, it's hard, even for the simple things. So that was around, I guess, 2018. Then your other condition set in and then the pandemic happened. It, it was just really, it was one yes. thing after another for you for a while. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, it was. And, I, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, like, like, it's like, why me, God? What did I do? You know, <laughs> but, 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 uh, yeah, the thing of it is, at the end of the day, take care of your health, you know, and you can't, you can't tell that to people enough because people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Nobody's going to be here forever. And you don't have to, uh, contribute to, you know, uh, health issues within your body. That's it. it. It's it's take care of your health, but also understand that, that it happens to us all eventually. Well, we hope nobody, I hope nobody in the world ever experienced it. They call it GBS, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, I understand, okay, of all the millions and millions of people in the world, only three, first they said 3,000 people get it, right? And I said, I said, what the hell? Why did I have to be fortunate that they get the magic unicorn? Regardless of your health situation, um, there, there's just a, there's a certain point when it when you just you just can't do it anymore, you know. I mean, and that happens to everybody. There's there's just a certain point where you can't do touring anymore. Yeah, touring, touring, uh, touring, it, it's something. It, it's, it's it can really take a toll on you. You really, you know. That's why I said I'm not saying that you know as you mature you can't do it, but uh, boy, in your youth is fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, but but as you mature, you go, oh God, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, but you know, I, I, what I'm going to say, the one thing from, you know, the 2000s, I guess, when recognition hit us and, you know, people really became aware of ESG, we toured all around the world, places I had never been before, okay? In, in any of the other uh, van things of ESG, I mean, we went to Australia. We went to Japan. We went to, uh, of course, London, France, Germany. I mean, we got to see the world. We went to uh, Brazil. We went, and and it was like wow. And then, of course, places in the states, we, places we had never been before. And that was after the 2000 version of ESG. And one of the things I think we were sort of talking around a little bit is, um, I mean, now you know now now they call it mindfulness, but really. This idea of kind of of appreciating what's happening to you in the moment, you know, and and again, health like bad health is one of those things that really makes you realize, you know, how perhaps how lucky you have been. But in, in that in that period, in the two thousands when you were touring the world, were you able to really sufficiently appreciate it and and soak it in? Yes, I mean, like, uh, and then of course, I still. Since the 2000s up up until the time of uh, before the pandemic, still got to go all around. One of the last things I did in 2019 uh, before I, I got sick uh, is I went on tour with Robin, and that was like it was fantastic. <clears throat> Excuse me. How much would you say playing music and your desire to play music again was was a motivating factor in your drive to get better? Yes, it certainly was. It certainly was. It was like, you know, I felt, I guess I felt we have one more sprint. You know, it's, it's like, 
one year we just did everything in the United States. I haven't been overseas in about five years. Okay. So now in uh, 2023, not only are we going to places that we haven't been before in the States, we're going to do a couple of things overseas, you know, especially as much as we love our American fans. We certainly love our fans over in the UK because again, it was factory who put us out first. So it's, it's a love with both the United States and the UK. Did I hear you right earlier? Did, did you say that you're working on a new record? We have two cuts that if you look on the uh, Facebook site, there's a uh, one called uh, Not My First Rodeo. <laughs> and the other one is called The Jam. And these are two cuts from the up and coming album. But it, it's like I'm working on that. And the most important thing that, that I'm working on if you get this documentary out there and get it out there in our own words, it's interesting the people I met who wanted to do documentaries on ESG, but they want to base them. It's funny. You're doing a documentary on my life and you're going to tell me how my life went just because you want a bunch of pictures. I'm not going to uh, participate in that. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, that's not happening. What's the status of the documentary? It's going well. I mean, uh, it's basically we're doing it ourselves. And then when we finish with it, you know, I have offers from, you know, uh, major streaming services, but I'm waiting to wait to finish it. Uh, You know, it's it's, to me by it being a do it yourself. Okay, it's honest. Okay, I I don't have to sit there with with directors or or people say, no, you can't do. No, I'm going to say it just like we want to say it. Okay, I will try. You know, I I still got, you know, a couple of things out there waiting for these people to you know return to get a couple of people that that we respect in the industry. And they say they're fans of ESG to say five minutes or something. At the beginning of the conversation, we, we talked about that book. But do you feel that that has been something of a constant in your career in terms of, you know, other people kind of trying to interpret your life? Well, well, yeah, I mean, to me right now, this is the most insulting, okay? Nobody, we've been in the business for 45 years, okay? Nobody has ever tried to write a book about us, you know? I mean, people say, oh, you know, we're trying to give you respect. You, you know, you're, you're, you're one of the most well-known band that people don't know who you are. Okay, I'm putting it to like this, okay? People do know who we are, okay? It's just that, that. You want to put us on a, on a, on a plane that's not real because you're telling lies. Okay, if it's going to be a story, let it be real. And that's why I said it's important to me to finish up this documentary the way I want to finish it up. And and at the end of the day, it, it, if you like, it's fine. If you don't, but it's going to be truth. After the twenty 27- seven teen record, I mean, I, I got the sense that you didn't expect to be making another ESG record at any point. No. Oh, you know what happens? It's bad enough. They got a rapper out there uh, using the name. And, his, you know, his real name is Ill. Okay. And the funny thing, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I never took legal action on him. Yet I have a letter from him with his signature on it from his uh, representation at that time saying he would never use the name again. I, you know, I could have went after him. I didn't, you know, this, this, it, it, it doesn't bother me. But then we had these girls from Taiwan and they were using the name ESG and they said they were five girls from the rough 
uh, rough housing area of Taiwan. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This story is too familiar. Yeah, like, what the hell? You know? So, uh, yeah. So I wrote a big letter to, you know, and everybody commented on it. And I said, listen, I said, this was bad enough to rap. I said, but not the girls. And that's them trying to tell a rough edge story from their, their, their concept. I, I don't want to hear about it. There are 26 letters in the alphabet. Use another combination, please. Okay. The appearance of that rapper, was that, was that part of why you thought that that was going to be your last record? Yes, yes, because I was saying at that point, what more can you take? Okay, and, and I, mean, you, you, I mean, you took our music by sampling, now you want to take our name. I mean, what more can you take? You know, so that was the, 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 the reasoning on that title. Now, the new one uh, is going to be called Are You Serious? And, and that's also the name of the documentary. And it's like, Are You Serious? I mean, come on, here we go again. You took our name for this. You took our name for that. I'm like, that's just crazy to me because, come on. I mean, when people say you're not doing it for a specific reason, yes, you are, okay? Because ESG is known, as you said, in the hip-hop world for the sampling effect. So, I mean, for both rappers, and then, you know, at the time, it was a group, now it's just one guy. And I'm like, are you serious, man? You know, it, it, it's 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 just a, it's upsetting to a point because again, as I just said to you, Brian, there are 26 letters in the alphabet. I mean, you couldn't come up with. I can see it, but what's even their name? You know, Edward, Sigmund, you know, George. You know, they're not gonna understand, but this is the case. Or at least change the order, at very least. There you go. For obvious health-related reasons, there's going to be a point in the not-too-distant future where you're going to have to stop touring altogether, but will you still be able to record music? Is that something you anticipate continuing to do? Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if I will record anymore, you know. I think after this last album, that's that's basically going to say what I got to say. It's just going to be smooth and danceable and fun, like the you know to me like the rest were. But um, no, I mean I don't see it. I mean I, maybe I'll do some collaborations and stuff. And I always tell anybody and everybody, I said the only way you'll ever get me to perform after twenty twenty three. Is if that is that Madison Square Garden? Because see, you can't be born and bred in New York and not play Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I think it's a possibility. I think you should hold out for that. Don't write it off. <laughs> no, I'm not going to write it off. I mean, I'll come out of retirement for that one. <laughs> You're also working with your son on his music. Yes. You know, as we were talking about your about your mother's encouragement of the bands. You know, in spite of the fact, again, that a lot of uh, a lot of parents don't get what their kids are doing, or a lot of their parents, you know, try to dissuade their children from going into music because it is it is a hard path. You having sort of been through that and seen it all from your own perspective, and really understanding how difficult it can be to make a life in music, um, was it ever hard to encourage your children to to also get into that world? No, <laughs> no, no. I mean. I saw that, like, for instance, my daughter, Nicole, she plays the bass. And I saw that she was good at bass. 
Wow. I said, uh, it, it, for the same reason my mom encouraged us to play music, it, 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 I didn't want them hanging out because, you know, uh, there's all sorts of, of, of bad things in the street, you know? So I, I just didn't want them hanging out. If they were creating music, fine. And generally, you know, music people tend to be able to, to hang in a, a music sort type of, uh, of environment, you know? And that's generally, and a keyword I say generally, uh, pretty, pretty um, good for the, the individual. 